You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to the Women in Archaeology Podcast, Episode 1. I'm your host, Sarah Head, and I'm joined today by Kristen Lopez, Chelsea Slotten, and Emily Long. In this episode, we look over the recently ended Oregon occupation, the legal ramifications of it, and how ARPA is going to fit in with the charges being brought up against the Bundy brothers and other occupiers. We also discuss other cases where ARPA played a part in the successful prosecution of site looting, and we discuss ways to improve communicating archaeological importance to the public. Get ready to change your perspective with the Women in Archaeology podcast. everyone, and welcome back to the Women in Archaeology podcast. I am your host, Sarah, with my co-host. I'm Kirsten Lopez. I am a graduate student with the university, I'm sorry, with Oregon State University, starting in the fall this year and have been working in CRM for a few years now. Hi, everybody. I'm Chelsea Slotten. I am a graduate student at American University in Washington, D.C., and I will be working on biological material from Iceland. Hello, I'm Emily Long. I'm an archaeologist for uh, seasonally for Alpine Archaeological Consultants and a substitute teacher and blogger and all that good stuff. And I've been uh, an archaeologist for about seven years now. All right. And today we are going to be discussing the recent occupation in Oregon, um, how that ended and if ARPA is going to be part of the prosecution for those individuals. Kirsten, why don't you get us started? So I'm sure everyone has heard and knows at least a little bit about the Malher occupation or have heard of the occupation, quote unquote. 41 days was sort of the length of the occupation. It was very controversial from the outset. As time went on, uh, there were a few videos that came out with archaeological remains and uh, remains being the leftovers from a site, not so much human remains, but say there's artifacts that were rifled through within the storage area of the refuge, as well as the site being bulldozed. And so, you know, that's was kind of the big, some of the big things that have been set up with the internet, Facebook, and other social media has been a really big player in kind of bringing it out to the open as far as something that is actually their problem. The tribes have spoken out and asked for prosecution. Uh, we haven't, at least so far that I've seen, seen any official announcement that that will be part of the prosecutions. They were arraigned yesterday here in Portland, but the prosecution is still gathering all of the evidence for the court date in April. So there's still a lot going on in trying to figure out what is going to be included. I'm really hoping that ARPA will be included, and there's a lot of pressure from the Burns Paiute to uh, get that underway. Chelsea, you want to add anything? Not particularly. I think that was a pretty good summation of, of what's going on. I think one thing that is important to remember, at least in this particular instance, is that because this was involved in such a contentious issue, that there has been a lot of 
media attention paid to it more than necessarily gets paid to other issues of Native American archaeological remains being disturbed or stolen or what have you. And hopefully that awareness can help with the, the claims that are being made by the Native tribes and get them the justice that they deserve. Yeah, Chelsea, that's a really good point to bring out is that while this is something that's actually an ongoing problem, uh, particularly in the region there, uh, there's looting fairly consistently and it's always expected to be seen. Um, As an archaeologist, it just kind of, you know, it's out there, but it's very difficult to prosecute. And that's where a combination of awareness is a really good thing to see with this. Just a lot of people don't know that, A, it's legal, (laughs) that there are even sites out there. One of the most entertaining questions I get when people, you know, ask what I do for a living. I say, oh, you know, I do archaeology or I'm an archaeologist. I get the question of, oh, where do you go? And I'm like, well, just, you know, locally, Pacific Northwest. And I always get the answer of like, oh, there's archaeology here? (laughs) Right. So The Indiana Jones effect. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, my gosh, yes. Well, actually, I I have a question. Um, Has there been any evidence whether or not the militants were even aware of their actions being negative when they were rifling through the artifacts or digging trenches like were they aware of the fact that there were sites or the, aware of the fact that what they were doing with the artifacts was wrong not that ignorance ex- is an excuse but i'm just kind of curious like were they even aware of the fact that what they were doing was against crm law i hmm, you know that would require me to put words in their mouths and as much as yeah. i want to be like yeah they knew um <laughs> You know, maybe they didn't... The The video that I saw where they were displaying all the artifacts that they were rifling through there and they were acting like they were appalled when clearly they were not. You could tell there was a level of ignorance there. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if that extends to them understanding that they weren't supposed to do that in the first place. I mean, it's, it's really hard to make the argument of complete ignorance when there's reports of them having dug trenches... And then crapping in said trenches and also the, the bulldozing of the site. I mean, that seems excessive for ignorance. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Definitely. Yeah. I also think, um, oh, just building off of um, uh, uh, what, what was being said about how this is at least like uh, one positive coming out of this is that awareness that, that concept of awareness. And I think another thing coming out of that in terms of awareness is how much it's going to take to um, restore uh, or at least try to get some data out of these archaeological sites if they've been completely um, destroyed by the trenches. So at least I think people re- at least learn how much destruction there's been done and how much will have to be done restoration wise. So at least that, at least there's that. Hopefully that will come out in the, in the following articles and whatnot. Like I, I feel the, I feel the loss of the archeology. span I really do. But Mm -hmm. to me, the greater, the greater sin here is the complete disregard for the native American tribes Mm -hmm. that were working with the BLM out there. I, I can't help but feel like that's kind of a betrayal of their trust, but you know, again, I don't want to put words in anybody's mouths. Kirsten, you, you said you have a little bit of connection with the people in the area, don't you? I've worked in the region before. I've worked with the tribes in the area. There's several, Burns Paiute in particular, maybe mm-hmm. on 
one or two occasions. However, to me, a lot of it is it's very much, yes, the disrespect and disregard. Part of me wonders with the Bundys being from Nevada, how ignorant they really are to tribal needs and to the fact that there's sites kind of everywhere because it's still part of the Great Basin as well. Same big geographic region, similar tribal remains. So you're saying they, they were aware of it, you think? I would think that being ranchers in the Great Basin, it's a similar desert environment. There's stuff out there. One of the unique things about the Northern Great Basin in that region is that there's very little, if any, pottery. So that is, there's generally not uh, any pottery in the Northwest. So that's something that if he was used to seeing that, I don't remember exactly what part of Nevada he was in, but that may be something that maybe he was used to seeing and they weren't looking for other things. The sites generally, if you're not aware or know what you're looking for, can be elusive on occasion. I you know, don't know exactly which sites that they were at. Some are more obvious than others. But one of the things that Emily brought up with intent and knowing that what they were doing was illegal, uh, that I think will be the most important thing that will come up in the prosecution because in ARPA, it does mention that in order to prosecute, they have to have an intent to do ill, like they know that this is against the law. And that is one of the reasons why there's so few prosecutions with ARPA, aside from just you know, we have just in the Department of the Interior a maximum of 70,000 people to manage some 2 million archaeological sites over the entire nation. And it's just so few people because most of that, I mean, a good handful of that at least is administrative. So that's not field agents. I think the BLM has a maximum of 200 for the entire country officers. Um, those are in agent. So it's hard to really be like, like you're saying, it's hard to put words in the mouths, their mouths being like they knew that it was wrong. I mean, in theory, you'd think it would be obvious. Right. Um, but for a lot of people, it's not. I, I feel like, like my gut wants to say that they knew it was wrong just because of how petty and malicious the things that they did were, especially in regards to I mean, they were in a preservation and they were going out of their way to be disrespectful of the things being preserved there, which tells me that on some level they were knowingly being jackasses. That's ARPA is very, I read over it and it's very vague. And I think it was meant to be that way. I, I don't really understand why, though. I, I feel like it was not something that was taken seriously when it was written and passed. Mm-hmm. And now we're like reaping the benefits of that because I mean, there's, does anybody know how many su- cases have successfully been prosecuted under ARPA? Well, I was actually just thinking of that and I Googled um, <laughs> recent <laughs> ARPA Google. cases and I just to see if anything comes up and not much comes up at all. Really, the most thing that I see are about uh, international um, archaeological issues. But yeah, I, I just don't see much and that that's troubling it's like how much weight does this law have how can we how can these men be prosecuted under it if there aren't too many cases to add precedence 
That's a really good point, both with the the weight of the law as well as just because a law is on the books doesn't mean that people are willing to, to prosecute it necessarily. And I think that right. we kind of see that all over this country and potentially all over the world. But one of the things that strikes me about some of the videos that have come out is and, and the statements about the videos, the militia members were shown rifling through objects. At some point, they came out with something criticizing the preservation and care of these artifacts, I guess. And to me, if you see something that you are associating the words preservation and care with, that implies some some level of knowledge that these are something worth caring or something worth preserving. True. So at the very least, based on their linguistic choices, they kind of dug themselves into a little bit of a hole, acknowledging that these are important things and things that should be preserved better and blaming the BLM for not doing a better job of preserving them and that that really works against any argument of ignorance that they could make. I agree. I, yeah, I like that you tore that down linguistically. And I, I think the, I know with the video you're talking about where they're trying to go through all the the storage there and they're showing things and talking about rat feces on things and mice in the boxes. And it's I feel like what, what they were trying to do there was uh, to get the tribes to be like, oh, this is horrible. We're very angry about it because they were they were trying so desperately to get support and just nobody in the area wanted to support them whatsoever. And I think this was a a desperate act on their end to try to get the Native American tribes in the area to support them. And I love that it backfired horribly on them. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I love that the, the few, I mean, I think one of the tribes sent one of their elders forward to speak about it. And they were, they were like, no, you're a bunch of idiots. Get the hell out of here and quit touching our stuff. And I, I just kind of liked that. I appreciated that a lot. Well, one of the interesting things is the tribes actually helped create the, the storage area and they were very intimately involved with the management of the archaeology there and the fact that they'd gone in and been like you guys want your stuff back and the tribes just kind of you know that's supposed to be there yeah <laughs> yeah we yeah. Know there no, I, I thought that was pretty cool and I mean the, the concept of having a project like that where the archaeologists are working with the tribes and the tribe are part of it. I mean, that's great. We should have more projects like that around. But then when you have guys like this come in and they just start poking fingers and I mean, who knows what they did while they were in there. They, what if they took things out of bags? What if they, you know, messed things up? I, I don't know. Well, and I read one article uh, with an interview from, I can't remember whether it was someone in the tribe or an archaeologist that had worked with the tribe before, but just talking about the artifacts that existed on that site that they know about. And just the amount of time and resources that it's going to take to go through that site they were estimating that it's going to take at least a year so and then you also get how does that affect your arraignment policies if you won't have evidence of this for a year do you arraign these individuals using ARPA now or do you wait until some archaeologists have gotten in there and seen some more of the damage that was done and seen if anything was taken. And then do you go back and add additional charges? Can you do that? Um, I think you can add charges, although I'm, I'm not a lawyer, so... Yeah, all right. that's fair. Kirsten, what, what historics were damaged? Interestingly enough, so 
the fish and wildlife have that, uh, and BLM run the refuge there. So that refuge that they took over was the one of the first out there. It's over a hundred years old. Oh, so the building itself is the building oh. itself. And the paths involved, so that road that they bulldozed in, everything that they did in that was a an ARPA violation. So it's not just the Native American sites. I mean, those were unjust in themselves, definitely. But another piece that people aren't looking at is the fact that the whole thing is a historic site. So you have the, the buildings and outbuildings, you have the roads, the historic roads, the reason why there wasn't a road there prior where they put it in was because of the archaeological site there, you know, so there's a lot of a nuance to that as well. I want to say, I can't remember the exact date that that was built, but it was around 1900, 1909-ish. So it's pretty far back. We'll see what happens. Um, I'm not sure about the fences. I'm sure some of it might be. However, I think those were more the, the cattle, you know, just the wire fencing. So those are, they only last so long. I'm sure they restring them every now and again. But if I remember the video correctly, it was they cut the wires and then unrolled the fence that way. And the neighbor was actually pretty upset about it because he didn't want them to open that and let his cattle out. Yeah, yeah, but they're, the, they're everybody's cattle, aren't they? Isn't, isn't that the... <laughs> concept this guys are running on. Okay, we're going to go to a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to pick up where we left off. The CRM Archaeology Podcast brings together a panel of cultural resource management professionals to discuss the issues that really matter to the profession. Find out about networking strategies, job hunting, graduate programs, and much more. We'll often feature interviews with college professors, CRM business owners, and experts as well. Check out the show on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash CRM Arc Podcast. Let's get back to the show. everyone and we are back and we are still talking about the the occupation and if they're going to get prosecuted under ARPA or not is it even possible if we have to have so much to go through to see what exactly we would be charging them with at this point mm -hmm. so basically are they going to have to sit down and go through the catalog and do a comparison line by line comparison with the catalog or do we know so I was just going to say I found the the article that mentioned this timeline and the quote was from Jarvis Kennedy who's the tribe's sergeant at arms and they said that it will take at least a year to account for both the records and objects because everything is in such disarray and that doesn't seem to even account if you have to track down anything that's been sold on eBay or that sort of were thing. Were they selling things? I know they were selling the dildos everyone was sending them <laughs> I didn't realize they were selling artifacts as well. I don't know that they did, but I know that there was concern from the native tribes after the militia expressed interest right. in the artifacts that given the militia's need for money and the lack of support and the lack of people sending money to them, that they would raid these tribal artifacts and sell them to kind of support the cause, so to speak. 
feel like that's something they would have done. Uh, Emily, did you want to jump back in? I've been trying to find anything that could uh, that would provide precedence on uh, these court cases or any court case to be able to beef up what what happened or beef up the evidence, be able to get these guys prosecuted. And again, still can't find much. So don't don't have much to add there. Sorry. <laughs> so one of the things with ARPA, like we were talking earlier, I pulled it up again. It wouldn't, part of it depends with the prosecution on what they were shooting for. So if they were waiting for all of the evidence to come in and that that would fall under having to go through all of the artifacts and see kind of what happened or to see if they took anything or sold anything. Uh, that would be nice to have, I think, <laughs> and to track down and have in the case. But I think for ARPA specifically, you have, quote, any person knowingly who knowingly violates or counsels, procures, solicits, or employs any other person for themselves shall upon conviction be fined, this is where it's sketchy, it says no more than $10,000. If it's below a certain value after a certain point, then it would be no more than $20,000 or in prison, not more than two years or both. And that's where with other cases, we've seen like the 30 days that comes up. But felony charges may occur if the value exceeds $500. So the value being archaeological value, And that is where the cost of going through for that full year and kind of seeing what's all there and what damage had been done, all of that is included in the cost and thus the value of the damage that they did. So this could be potentially easily a felony charge just from that piece, as well as all of the stuff that they did externally. So the bulldozing of the site, any other damage to the historic property. There's a low threshold there. I mean, $500 is beans for archaeological costs. So I think that would be fairly easy to go after. The difficult thing would be the intent. Proving that they intended to do that. Exactly. They had knowing there's criminal intent. That's going to be the more difficult one when it comes to the prehistorics. But I think with the historics, that that would be very easy to prove. And because this is such a huge site, it doesn't have to be everything that they did. It just has to be one. That this thing in total, the entire occupation and the I mean, they didn't just go and sit. No. There's pictures of some of them like sitting through and rifling through the papers with archaeological data. We know that they looked at the maps because there's pictures of them doing that, going through the the site files. And that was some concern expressed that they were going out to loot other sites on the property. The cost of going and looking through all of that is a whole other thing. But it would be easy, I think, to exceed that felony charge minimum. Well, I'm like you. I feel like that they could get that $500 just from the damage to the historical site to begin with, which obviously oh, yeah. they did out of knowingly. I mean, having evidence of them rifling through maps and through reports and actual data and then having them rifling through the artifacts themselves. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know how a court case would handle this. And I know that the charges that they have been that they have been brought up on are very, very significant. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Not, none of these people are walking away from this. So the question for me that I want to pose to you guys is, since we know that they're going to go down anyway, 
how important is it that we also tack on ARPA charges? I mean, is it purely symbolic at this point or is there a greater reason to do it? So I think that's actually really important. I'm glad you brought that question up. We were talking earlier kind of about the lack of precedent for using ARPA for the convict people or even to try people. Right. And because there does seem to be, I mean, we've got videos and personal statements of these individuals. There is a lot of evidence in this case. And I think that there is a a strong argument to be made, especially since they did look at the archaeological papers, that even if they didn't know when they started doing it, once you have found those papers and read any of them and realized the significance of the area and continued to do it, you are now aware of the nature of the the site. And from a setting a precedent standpoint, from making a statement that this is important, you know, it's something we should care about, it's something we should prosecute. I think it's very important from that perspective. Whereas the amount of time or money added to a sentence or a fine might not be a huge percent of the actual punishment handed down. It's it's very important, I think, on that sort of, I mean, it kind of does borderline on the symbolic. Another thing to note, too, the in 1987, there was a, an act passed by Congress called the Criminal Fines Improvement Act, which actually upped all of those fines from, <laughs> from $20,000 to $200,000. So it's still not beans compared to what they're going to be charged with otherwise. But I think it is a really big statement to have this, this public. And if they don't prosecute, you know, that it says a lot. And... I know generally, at least in the Northwest, a lot of the times when you do find looters and evidence of looting, there's a lot of other stuff going on. (laughs) That person is not going to be like, that's their sole thing. I mean, that's, it's fairly rare. A lot of the things, or a lot of times when you have looting, especially in Oregon and Washington, what you find alongside that is drug use, uh, meth manufacturing. So that's usually what's gone after. And ARPA slips from priority. And some of that has to do with how knowledgeable the prosecutors are about ARPA and how important it is to the people in power at the time, the people who are implementing these laws. And, you know, when you have a strong anti-drug district attorney, whereas someone who is knowledgeable about history and wants to really kind of push the preservation, they might have a different take on it. Emily? Um, I... 100% agree that setting it up as um, a precedence is incredibly important. And I also agree that, yes, it may be highly symbolic, but it is incredibly important that it be added on. And you're right, there's pretty uh, high charges. It's like a terrorism conspiracy. Yes, they're they're not going anywhere. I I think they're all getting hit with treason charges, which don't get called out that often, as I'm aware. Yeah. And so, yes, it may seem like um, a small thing, but I I agree that it it is incredibly important. And on top of that, it would acknowledge the the tribe's fears that this may not be acknowledged and that acknowledging these fears that not much will happen with uh, the artifacts and with the sites, I think it would go a long way to helping that situation. And it It'd be a great call to action. I saw that 
the the refuge is already getting like 600 volunteers to help with the restoration. And perhaps they'll be able to have some archaeologists come in and really help uh, figure out the, the total damage, not only to the artifacts, but to the sites. And that may be, again, a great call to action to get people not only at the refuge, but at many federal land agencies that they'll see that what a big deal this actually is and how people can help prevent something like this happening again. One of the things that I've talked to other archaeologists about when it comes to uh, how do we get local people involved in local archaeology, and one of the things is give them agency and give them possession. And they've already established that here with the tribes, having them work with them and all that, but it's important once that's established to foster that and yeah you're right if we don't and i mean we the the u.s government i suppose at this point if if we don't follow that up with hitting these guys with charges i i agree with you i feel like that will that that could potentially damage any kind of relations the blm out there has with the the local tribes but again i mean I mean, I don't i don't want to play devil's advocate but i do i, I feel like any charges at this point will be pretty symbolic or just, you know, add insult to injury, which I am completely okay with in these guys, for these guys' <laughs> cases. I mean, me too. <laughs> little salt in the wound there is not going to hurt my feelings any on their end. Um, Read some lemons on it. <laughs> right? These guys, short of like shooting them in the head, these guys pretty much deserve <laughs> all of the bad stuff that's getting ready to happen to them. Um, I don't feel like they deserve any physical harm, but they deserve a lot of legal harm. Just in general, just their disregard for everyone in the area, not just the tribes, but the people who lived in the town and the area and the people who worked at that area. It just, they were just a bunch of jerks. Um, yeah. Agreed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, like, I, it may be symbolic and it may be petty, but I, I just want them dogpiled. I just want them dogpiled with yeah. every charge that we can throw at them. And I just, you know, throw the book, throw ARPA at them. If that's what it takes, do it, you know? Maybe make them uh, personally clean out all of the crap they right? <laughs> they put they put in those trenches. Oh, <laughs> Punishment fitting the crime. I like that. I have yeah. funny stories of field workers, but it's completely different than willfully digging a trench through a known mm-hmm. site and then filling it up. It's just oh, disgusting. Exactly. They couldn't get a latrine or something, or just use the bathroom at the building. Here? Oh, that's true. <laughs> yeah, they I, were I don't know that they could have gotten a porta potty delivered out there, <laughs> given like the blockades and stuff that was going on. But you start digging if you find, you know, artifacts or if you looked at archaeological maps that tell you that this is, you know, an important and sacred site. Mm-hmm. Dig somewhere else or poop yeah. in a bag. I mean, they did it on a cruise ship. You can certainly do it during a siege. I mean, <laughs> just saying, <laughs> other things you could have done. <laughs> well, and part of me wonders, like, because the toilets out there, I'm sure, are going to be something along the lines of a vault toilet or something. Mm-hmm. It's going to need to be drained. And they're out there for 41 days, you know. Yeah, that's probably why they dug the ditches, <laughs> it, honestly. Exactly. I'm sure they filled it. And that's just, Cause I, I can't imagine. <laughs> I, I got the feeling that those guys were kind of, you know, pretty, pretty princesses anyway. So I don't see any of them being rugged enough to really like digging a hole and crapping in it. So they either did it purely out of maliciousness or out of necessity. And either way, it's not a good enough reason for me. So, And a combination of stupidity. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, the stupidity goes <laughs> without saying. I mean, <laughs> the original act was, hey, guys, let's go take over some federal government property. I mean, who who does that? But anyway, that's a different discussion. <laughs> <laughs> Cases where ARPA has been prosecuted successfully. We have one case that has recently been prosecuted. The guy got a whole 30 days in prison. So it's uh, Oroville. And uh, we decided that was in California. Did anybody read up on this? It was a very brief article. That shows another thing is like, why aren't, why isn't this coming up in the news? <laughs> it comes up on the local page. It took me a while to figure out that this was a news site for California. Cause I guess they just assume, you know, that if you're reading this website, but yeah, the, the guy, apparently his name is, uh, I'm going to butcher this. His name is John Palamba, who was 64 for the past 20 years. He, he has admitted to basically pot hunting. To the point where he has been arrested before by park rangers uh, with his pockets bulging with collected arrowheads, tools, and ornamental items. He's he's the gentleman that has over 2,000 objects that he had been collecting throughout the year. And yeah, apparently he did issue an apology to the tribes that are in the area, but I don't know. I don't really think you're that sorry. I think he's more sorry he got caught than sorry that he actually did it. Sure. And it it makes you wonder if he's been caught before with pockets bulging. Why is this the first time that he's been convicted? You know, he's a known offender. Um, He just gets thrown back out there. Right. Is this like a, oh, well, we've given you a slap on the wrist and, you know, he's just continued to do it. What's what's going on there? Well, there's there's a comment that the very first comment that pops up for me anyway, their comment is basically they start off with that doesn't seem right. If he found them just walking around the shores, why is this a crime? I think that comment right there pretty much sums up the problem that archaeology has with the greater population people. And someone mentioned this earlier at the beginning of the show. People do not understand that they are breaking the law when they go out onto public or private property and just start picking up shiny rocks. People just don't get that. And I think we as a community, we the archaeology community, really should do something to educate people about that. Um, and we'll pick up on that as soon as we get back from break. in CRM, a weekly podcast. Ask CRM professionals eight simple questions. The first questions establish education, location, and experience. The last questions are a reflection of that experience, and the answers will surprise you. Check out the show on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash profiles. On that page, you can also request to be interviewed for the show. It only takes 20 minutes, and you don't need any special equipment. Let's get back to the show. And we are back. Emily, you pulled up a really nice article. Do you want to talk about that? Sure. I don't know too much about the case. I just remember it blew up right out of college. In Bluff, Utah, it suddenly just 
came about that a lot of the local prominent figures had been looting artifacts for years and selling them. And it turned into a huge court case. And it's the article states that there were quite a few FBI charges. It doesn't state specifically that ARPA was used, but many, many people, 24 people, went were charged. They were either fined, um, went to jail, quite a bit happened. And we're talking not just like, you know, a few arrowheads. Um, People had taken major like ancient blankets, uh, stone pipes, seed jars, digging sticks, pots, all kinds of things. And I do remember that the, the case was in the local news and probably Utah and Colorado news. So it wasn't quite a, it didn't seem to be a huge national story, but at least that it, the story got out there. And so maybe that can be used as some sort of precedence to charge the gentleman in the Oregon situation. There are, yeah, I'm, I'm looking this over. There's quite a few, I would say there's about 20 names oh, yes. or more mm-hmm. on here. Mm-hmm. And they said that there were 115 felony counts and a handful of misdemeanors. Yeah, I mean, and these are people who well should have known better than to do and this. And they did. Um, that came out that they definitely did know better, but they did it anyway. They did it anyway. Mm-hmm. 23 defendants. There we go. This is a very large case. This is something that could totally go forward. They could use this as a precedence, especially if they can prove that there was intent to sell. So that was a successful one. So we've got this one much better than the 30 days. That was around 2009. So not yeah. too long ago. I remember it must have been around 2005 There was a couple that were out west that got hit with some crazy felony charges, but they had been looting and selling. I mean, they they would basically camp out and wait for archaeologists to find sites, and then they would go and pot hunt the sites and then sell everything. Those those two got hit with a lot of time. I think I remember that one. That was a couple uh, that were prosecuted in Oregon. They were from Nevada or looted the Nevada sites. That sounds right. That's where it's crossed state borders. And hilariously, actually, it was the wife that ratted uh, ratted them out because her and her husband were having issues. So 20 years of looting was, you know, uncovered because of this. And it's one of the largest and oldest sites in northwestern Nevada, actually, which is it's kind of sad. There's like some, some crazy, amazing stuff that came out of that uh, cave site. So that was a, an unfortunate run of events that it took so long. And it took one of the looters to be like, hey, my husband's been doing this for so long. And one of the things I think, actually, if I recall correctly, it fell under ARPA because it crossed state lines. However, there is a federal time limit on prosecutions, and that particular case exceeded that, which is why they were tried in Oregon courts. Um, I don't remember the exact laws for Oregon, a similar ARPA-ish type law. I can't think of the exact what it is exactly right now, but that's where the their prosecution uh, ended up being achieved. Yeah, I just remember that they got what I thought was an obscene amount of time, but upon further reflection, what they did, I mean, they only got hit with time. I think they got fined an amazing amount of money, but considering the damage that they did, I really don't feel like it was unfair. Do you want to talk about Mr. Jonathan Bourne here? Yes. So Jonathan Bourne, this is in the LA Times. This is something I tripped upon a little bit ago. And 
I believe it was just last year in 2015, he was brought to court on 21 felony counts of looting. And again, uh, crossing state borders is a one of the big things that kicks ARPA in, aside from the fact. So there's just a backup here real quick. ARPA kicks in only if it's federal public land or it crosses state borders. And so that's where there's a lot of in and out. And a lot of states have similar laws that cover state land or states such as Oregon also covers private land. You cannot loot on private land. But getting back to the story. So he was 59, a medical doctor, and uh, he had been looting the Death Valley region and nearby forests for a number of years and came out of it, let's see, with 98 years in prison with maximum if convicted on all counts. I don't know. This particular article does not have his final conviction uh, listed on here, but that's kind of what he was was looking at. And it was one of those really good examples of, to to quote the TIPO, or Tribal Historic Preservation Officer for the Lone Pine Paiute Shoshone Reservation, uh, she said, this case sends a strong message. It is illegal to collect artifacts on public lands. And I think that is a message that you know we need to send here in Oregon as well. Um, but that was kind of a fun one. He had, uh, I believe he was set up. That was something that they had kind of, uh, people had kind of known about it. And someone turned him in and he ended up, they actually expected to recommend a, a sentence of less than 20 years in prison but he faced up to 89 and the estimated number of artifacts he had in his home was 30,000. That's yeah, a that's art museum. Yeah. I yep. don't like the way that they, the article worded here that the, the agents also seized log books containing details of Bourne's archeological finds. I don't like how they're making it sound like he was an archeologist or doing archeology span in his looting. I agree. I agree. This is this just, Man was not an archaeologist. He was a looter, plain and simple. Yes. And that is something, though, in the public mind, there is no differentiation. And right. that's where, like, TV shows like Diggers and things um, that the SAA, Society for American Archaeology, was really good about publishing or sending a letter that got a news channel to kind of back up on their appearance to condone looting. So that was kind of fun. Since we, we have a few minutes left here, we've got about 10 minutes left. I, we've talked about, what, four cases, not including the occupation now. The treatment of these things in the media has kind of run the gambit from, obviously, the occupiers were just ridiculed mercilessly in the press. But then you have the article about the guy that got 30 days. I think that was three whole paragraphs. There's basically no information there. Got... This article where there's a fair amount of information, but it's written in a way, I don't think they were trying to give a positive spin to what the guy's going through, but I think they're inadvertently softening the blow by doing things like, you know, archaeological finds and blah, 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 blah. They're just using the wrong words at the wrong time. And like the comments on the other, you know, why is that even an issue? How can we educate the media and thereby educate the public as to, no, this is looting. No, you shouldn't do it. 
we all have cameras. Take a picture. The picture will last longer. You know, report this stuff. How do we get that out to the lay public as archaeologists? What can we do to communicate that to the people who aren't archaeologists? I think what we're doing right now is a wonderful way to for the, the media and for the general lay public just discussing archaeology, talking about archaeology, and just putting it out there in a way that is so incredibly accessible. And then on top of that, perhaps uh, we should all, as archaeologists, consider it our public duty to, you know, either find ways to do archaeology day programs, um, working with websites, getting blogs out there. I've, I've personally found that kids love learning about archaeology. If you can go in one day, one year into a fifth grade class and talk about archaeology, it sticks with them. And I've honestly found they're so good at listening and it sticks with them. I've had a much more challenging time with adults. And so I think trying to even reach adults is incredibly important. I'm not sure the best way to do it, but um, really hitting it home because you can say a hundred times that's illegal. And they're like, but I'm like, no, it it really is illegal. Like, but like, no. Yeah, but it what really, if I really want the object? No, it's exactly. still, it's still. No one will know. Right? No one will know. Right? No one's looking. A lot of them think that, though. I, I mean, the ones that are aware that what they are doing is wrong, which I don't think are that many, but there are some that do. I think yeah. we honestly believe that no one cares and no one will find out. It's one artifact. What will just taking one small thing do? Because there are so many there. Chelsea. Okay, so this is an issue not just, you know, here in this country, but you talk about Egypt and people taking pieces of the the pyramids or going Mm -hmm. to to Greece. And I personally, I've never been to Egypt. Someday I will go. But I've been to, you know, some of the archaeological sites around Italy and Greece, and they have signs posted everywhere in, you know, a hundred languages. It's exaggerating, obviously. But saying, don't pick up the rocks and take them home. Don't do this. Don't do that. And you still see people do it all the time. So there is there is some issue of Special even if snowflakes. you cognitively know that it's wrong, getting people to kind of like internalize the like morality of it and just getting out there, not just this is wrong and we shouldn't be doing it, but here is the importance of these things. So it's not just somebody telling you not to do something. But so you have a reason not to do something. That is interesting, you know, creating or explaining to people the moral imperative of preservation and the moral imperative of not looting. And it's that whole using charged language, too. I say, don't do that. It's looting. And people hear me calling them looters. And I'm like, I'm not a looter. And I'm like, I'm not saying you're a looter. I'm (laughs) saying what you're doing is looting. If you don't want to be a looter, you shouldn't do that. People, all they hear is that that negative term being used towards them and they shut down. We all know that stealing is wrong, but I don't think people understand it. The point where they are on a site, especially knowingly on a site, when you pick up an object, regardless of how immaterial it looks to you, it is stealing at that point. One thing I've um, in in presentations that I I think it helped a little bit visualize what people were doing is like, all right, so you're on public lands and you see this beautiful projectile point. Well, think of this area as a museum 
and that artifact is on display. Well, if you were in a museum, you wouldn't break the glass and take it. You know, that's steel. Same applies. Just think of this as one large outdoor museum that belongs to everybody. That's really good. Yeah. It's a great metaphor. Hopefully, hopefully it works. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> my, my favorite thing to tell people is take a picture. We all have phones. All, yeah. Almost every phone on the planet now has a camera in it. Some of them are fantastic. Mm-hmm. Take some pictures. Find take out. a picture and GPS it. Yeah, exactly. Call <laughs> Yeah, GPS it. Get your coordinates. Text it to the state archaeologist. A lot of times the, the state groups will let you volunteer at a site, especially if you're like the one that quote unquote found it. You know, I, I can't guarantee how much you're going to be able to do, but they, they're they not going to rush you off like men in black and fly you away in a black helicopter just because you found a site. They're, they're excited to find the site. It's what we do for a living. That's, that's what we all went to school to do. Helping us preserve it would be incredibly helpful and would, in the long run, give, I would think, would give you a much more la- longer lasting sense of joy than taking a rock home because once you take it off the site and remove it from context, it's a rock. I don't care what it looks like. It's a rock, but now you're just, you have a rock in a box, you know, what are you going to do every now and then just open your box of rocks and touch your rocks. And I mean, (laughs) this is going places I didn't mean for it to go, but my point being (laughs) you have a box full of trinkets that mean nothing to anyone except you at this point, you can't share them with people. Really? You can't, you, you know, you can pass them on, you can bequeath them to your kids, but your kids probably aren't going to know. It is. It's a public archaeology thing. Um, but if you were to take a picture, send it to your state archaeologist, get people involved, you could preserve a site. You could be part of history. You know, you yeah. could do something that benefits generations from now. And some of this, I think, is also part of the problem in archaeology being so invisible to the public in a lot of ways and it's somewhere between there's a a couple of different reasons for it and I get some of the reasons is the non-disclosure with a lot of CRM projects that is necessary but you also have just the fact that a lot of research that's done is public to peers or published to peers and that's it it kind of stops there some things that are able to be published to the public aren't Some that has to do with underfunding, the fact that we don't have money to present to the public on a consistent basis. There isn't really a lot of, I mean, not to say that there's not interest out there, but somehow we seem to have missed the boat on large scale awareness programs. You know, we don't have an archaeology smoking the bear to say, don't dig up sites. Right. That's exactly Um, (laughs) what we need. The Smithsonian, for example, has instituted a, a new policy about public access, which is slightly different than open access. The information is usually presented in a slightly revised format to go to the public, and it's usually after a year. But just getting research that's been done and paid for by you know the government, and a lot of these archaeological projects are government-funded projects, right. but getting those out and accessible and out from behind paywalls so that, yes, academics can access it, but people who are between universities and don't want to pay whatever ungodly amount to get access to, you know, a series of journals or a collection, they can look at that information. They can, you know, write reports on it on their blog. 
that sort of thing is interesting. And that's kind of going into contracts nowadays with anything that gets published that's funded by the federal government is there has to be a, a public access clause in it. Um, so they have to pay for it, essentially. As they should. Did yeah. You, did you want to finish your thought? Um, so there were two things I wanted to note. Yes, with the CRM um, or cultural resource management, you don't know what that is. They do mandate public awareness or public integration. Some of it depends on the law that's being serviced, I guess you would say, whether it's 106, whether it's NHPA, whether it's any of the other federal laws, it's different levels of public involvement. And sometimes there's a lot of stuff that can't be shared with the public. And that's where a lot of times I think it's just sort of, I don't want to necessarily have to do with that. Most of nobody's going to care. It's kind of a tiny, small site. No one will really care. And there's also a fear, I think, of people knowing that there's a lot of sites out there and then going out and looting them. So there's a fear of awareness when there aren't people there to watch the sites. See, and mm-hmm. I think there's two major, I mean, you're correct. And I think there's two major flaws there because people love archaeology. So no matter yeah. how small the site is, people want to hear about it. The other thing goes back to the whole, you want to preserve a site, you got to get people involved with it. You have to give them a sense of possession. Because if people feel like, like if a community adopts a site or a series of sites, they're not going to let other people come in and destroy what they view as theirs. The community will then become part of the protector, the protector of the sites. But yeah, I mean, there, there is stuff that we just, you know, big important sites, we don't like them to get out. Yes. I, I'm torn there. I mean, yeah, I don't want to see them get destroyed, but at the same time, they do us no good hiding them in a closet somewhere. Yeah. The other side of the coin, too, I think, with some public advocacy programs, and I think public archaeology is, is great in its thing. There's a whole theory behind it, and there's lots of different directions you can go with it. But I think one of the more common ways that people carry out public archaeology is get people involved with digging. Because it's the first thing that people get excited about. Yeah. Unfortunately, that's also often where it stops. Yeah. People have this really cool feel of like, yeah, this is exciting. We're going to go dig up cool stuff. And they learn how to do it. And then they are like set free. So there's a very little education about preservation and the importance of the history behind it and why the site is being excavated and why it's important. I think there's, not in all cases, but in some cases, the preservation ethic that should be, I think, in some some ways presented first or be the more important thing. Well, let's let's wrap up final thoughts. Chelsea or Emily, do you want to go first there? Sure. I think like the the major takeaway from all of this, from the Oregon situation to all of the topics we were discussing, I mean, it's just highly desperate need we all have for just public awareness for not only what archaeologists do, but the importance of the things we're trying to um, record and take care of. And I'm sure it's a discussion for a whole other podcast oh, episode yeah. um, for public archaeology. But but with just the Oregon situation, I think trying to create greater public awareness for what was damaged, what was destroyed and what can be done and see how we can turn that into an educational moment for how we can better preserve, protect and so forth. Chelsea? 
Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to second that and go back to something that was said at the beginning of the podcast that there are, somebody said like 7,000 BLM agents to cover 2 million archaeological sites. Right. Those numbers aren't in our favor and no one can be watching those all the time or be protecting those all the time. The only way to really make the preservation of cultural sites viable is to get the people who live in and around those areas to care, you know, because they can kind of be the the eyes and ears if government agents can't be there. Kirsten? Yeah, I definitely second or third, I suppose, the both of you with Emily and Chelsea with just this stewardship being important. The awareness is, is definitely a big takeaway and the opportunities for education, I think, as archaeologists, we need to take as many of them as we can, whether it be the construction crews that we're monitoring uh, when we're out there that may not know a whole lot about why you're there, to just people in passing commenting about what you do. Oh, do you go to Egypt often? And just kind of making people aware that it's it's there and it's important and it's not just the ancient and exotic, it's also the stuff that's maybe your great-great-grandmother's farmhouse and how put things into a perspective and uh, sort of into their own ownership, like you were saying, in, in their back pocket. Well, ladies, I think we have excellent points, and I think we've solved the problem, so we can go <laughs> forth with clear consciences at this point, knowing that archaeology has been solved. But thank you, seriously, all of you, for joining me on this conversation. I do feel like we have discussed some very serious issues, and I hope that uh, people who are listening, if they want to join in on the conversation, send us uh, comments or questions, and I will put a link in the show notes for that to happen at. Ladies, thank you very much. Thank no, you thank you. Welcome, thank you. We hope you have enjoyed the show. Please be sure to subscribe and rate our show wherever you listen. We are available on iTunes, Stitcher, and probably whatever your favorite podcasting app is. Remember to like and share. If you have questions or comments, you can post them in the comments section for the show at the Women in Archaeology page on the Archaeology Podcasting Network site or email them to us at womeninarchaeologypodcast at gmail.com. This show is part of the Archaeology Podcasting Network and is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle. You can reach them at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Music for this show was Retro Future by Kevin McLeod, available at Incomtep and royalty-free music. Thanks for listening. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.